makes a difference. Let us hope. Of course, chances are the person who's going to call in the middle will be on my favorites list, and then it's going to come through anyway, and that will be of no help. But anyway, um, we begin Parsha's Pinchas. We're going to... I didn't even know that. That we're on Parsha's Pinchas? Ah, yeah, I think so. I think it works that way, but I, I might be wrong. What else can I tell you? Um, all, all sorts of things about the NFL and fine cigars. Um, <clears throat> so on page 876 in the stone, we begin Parsha's Pinchas. And Kedarkenu Bekodesh, we oftentimes take a little look back into the last Parsha to see how it connects with this week's Parsha. So if we were to turn one page backwards, um, we would see on page 874, Parakhafei, uh, paragraph 25, sorry, uh, uh, chapter 25, the Jews dwelt in Shittim, and the nation started to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab, uh, and they called they called the nation for the feasts of their gods. The people ate and prostrated themselves to their gods. Israel became attached to Baal Peor, and the wrath of Hashem flared up against Israel. Hashem said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people, hang them before Hashem against the sun. The flaring wrath of Hashem will withdraw from Israel. Moses said to the judges of Israel, let each man kill his men who were attached to Baal Peor. And behold, a man from the children of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman near to his brothers in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the entire assembly of the children of Israel. And they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the Kohen, saw, and he stood up from, from the assembly and took a spear in his hand. He followed the Israelite man into the tent and pierced them both, the Israelite man and the woman into her stomach, and the plague was halted from upon the children of Israel. Those who died in the plague were 24,000, period, end of the Parsha. So, if, if someone were to ask, why is Parsha's Pinchas coming here, that makes perfect sense, because... Uh, we saw that the Jews were, were committing this harlotry with the daughters of Moab, and Pinchas went and killed uh, Zimri and Cusby, even though they didn't tell you their names yet in last week's Parsha. Um, so it makes, again, perfect intuitive sense to have Parsha's Pinchas now. Or else it doesn't, because why would you split the story of Pinchas in two? Why would you... Right. Right, and then this week's parsha opens up by Davar Shem Mishalimor Pinchas Ben Elazar Ben Aaron Akohen Yeshivas Hamosimi Al Bnei Yisrael Bekanos Kinasim Zocham Velochilisias Bnei Yisrael Bekinasim Pinchas Son of Elazar Son of Aaron has turned my wrath from the children of Israel when he zealously avenged my vengeance among them, so I did not consume the children of Israel my vengeance. Therefore, I'm going to make him a Kohen. Blah blah blah. Fine. Where does this belong? Last week's parsha. Belongs in this week's parsha. Either way, right? Take your pick. Either the chapter 25 should be the beginning of Parsha's Pinchas, or the beginning of Parsha's Pinchas should be in last week's Parsha, the end of Parsha's Pollock in chapter 25. Well, the beginning of chapter 25 anyway. So, so something that seems so obvious and intuitive is actually the opposite of that. It's, it screams. It screams. What is wrong? What is wrong? Very weird. So, uh, and who is the man, the Israelite man? Well, his name, Meshemi Yisrael Amukeh, is Zimri ben Salu, and he's a, he's a prince of the Shimon tribe. And the name of the Midianite lady is Kazbi Basur. She's the daughter of one of the princes of Midian. And, I mean, why could you not have told me this at the end of last week's Parsha, where it said, a man came after them. A, a, a man went and took the woman before Moshe. It didn't, didn't name them. It names them here. That's weird. Okay. So they must feel like somehow the story of but then why isn't this there? It's too, it's too long. Right, we ran out of room. Precisely, we ran out of room. Actually, Pinchas is a much longer version than Malik. Really? Yes. No, I'm saying, if you were to put the whole thing in there, it would have been too 
Why the whole thing? The whole thing about uh, the whole thing about Pinchas in this week's parsha is uh, a paragraph and a half. It ends in the beginning of chapter twenty-six. Yes. So, so the the only the only part of Parsha's Pinchas. This is obviously going to give us another question, but the only part of Parsha's Pinchas that actually deals with Pinchas is the first chapter, the first paragraph and a half. Right. So they must say that part. Yeah. So it's got to be, but but. But why? Like, what, what else does Pinchas have to even do with the rest of this Parsha? Now, if you look at, if you, if you take the drone view, the drone view of this Parsha is God tells Moshe and Elazar ben Aaron Cohen to count the Jews again, and it gives you another counting. This is why the Christians call this the Book of Numbers, because there's another count. We haven't counted them in a little while, so we're going to count them again. Um, the uh, Rashi over here explains that, that you know, if a, if you're a shepherd and a wolf gets into your flock and eats a bunch of your sheep, you're going to count them up. So apparently, God's sheep, the flock, is us. We, the Jewish people, are his flock, and the wolf is the uh, the magifa that killed a bunch of them, and therefore God has to count them again. And honestly, Rashi leaves a lot to be desired because it doesn't seem like God needs to take a tally to know how many Jews there are that were gone from the flock which means that it must be for Moshe, I guess, or some other reason. I don't know. It's strange. I mean, you can say you can say that it's for a military thing because now we're about to go to war with the Midianites. The problem with that is that we don't actually use the army to fight the Midianites. We only use uh, 1,000 from each tribe, as we're going to see in next week's Parsha, in Parsha Smatos. So, but we'll, we'll leave that for now. Let's just sift through this rather quickly from the 30,000-foot view. It goes through the, the various Mishpachos, Mishpachos, uh, B'nai Yehuda is this, and Bnei Yisachar is this, and, da, 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 and it tells you all of the all of the countings. And after the countings, uh, it counts the children of Levi, and then it tells you about the daughters of Slavchad. So this Slavchad uh, fellow has five daughters. He has no sons, and they come to Moshe and they say, "Hey Moshe, our father died in the desert, um, and he wasn't from Adas Korach. He died with his sin. Uh, it's a strange thing. Why 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 that would be imported? Yeah, five daughters." Um, well, maybe that's where they got it. <clears throat> so, I don't know. I've never read the book. Well, maybe. So, so they come to Moshe, and they're like, why should our father lose his inheritance? And Moshe says, oh, okay, I'm going to talk to God. And God says that uh, if, if a person dies and he doesn't have any sons, then his, his nachalah will go to his daughters. And if he doesn't have a daughter, it goes to his brother or his father, etc., etc. Okay, very nice. So we have the laws of inheritance. That annoys you? What annoys you? That it only goes to the guys. Um, yeah, yeah. That 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 makes sense. It, yeah. Right. It makes it makes sense to me that 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 is annoying, and um, I would like to tackle it, but I don't want to tackle it in partial spin cuts because there's a better place for us to tackle it, um, as we will see God willing later in the coming weeks in Matos Masay. So then Hashem says to Moshe, "Okay, page eight hundred eighty-eight. It's time for you to die." So go up the elevator into Harnavo, and I will show you. Uh, I'll show you the land, and then you'll die. And and Moshe's like, well, you can't kill me yet because you haven't appointed a successor. Uh, he doesn't say you can't kill me yet. He says, Hashem, you should you should appoint a really great successor. That's what he's thinking about, which is awesome, right? Like you go to Moshe, hey, I'm going to kill you. It's time for you to go. And Moshe's first thought is like, no, please save me. It's hey, man, I I need a really good coach to step in uh, to win another ring after I'm gone. And Hashem says, "Okay, got Yoshua Benun. He's a good, uh, he's a good guy. 
Um, and Moshe gives him smicha in front of everybody, and that's beautiful. And then Hashem says, oh man, I totally forgot to tell you all about the Karban Tamid and the Musafim. I totally forgot. I know that in Sefer Vayikra, I told you about all their Karbanos. And you might think that those are the only Karbanos, because I only told you, but I really only told you 97% of the Karbanos. There's another 3% that I forgot. Whoops. So why don't we talk to you here about the Karbanos of the Tamid that you're going to bring every day, morning and night. And then I'm going to tell you about the Musafim, because... Uh, again, before, in Sefer Yikra, when I told you about the Chatos and the Ola and the Shlomim and the Mincha and, the, and all those things, I forgot to tell you that on the holidays, you also have Karbanos. In fact, it's called the Karban Musaf. And the reason it's called the Musaf is because Lehosif means to add, and it is an added Karban above and beyond the Karban, the regular Karban of the day, had this Wednesday not been the first day of, uh, of Sukkot. And uh, yes, exactly. That's why we say Musaf and Davni. So, uh, why, why in Blue Blazes would you tell me about the Karbanos towards the end of Sefer by Midbar when you've been talking about the Karbanos all throughout Sefer Vayikra? And if you're going to say, yeah, well, because we're talking about holidays here. The holidays are also in Sefer Vayikra. Parsha Samor is the holidays. So not only do the Musafim don't belong here, but the holidays don't belong here either. Like, this is crazy. I mean, his mom is crazy. No, no, no. This is the first time that we hear about these, about these Musafim. Maybe. Maybe God was waiting until then to decide whether to give it up. But but all of the Torah was given on Sinai anyway. This is just where it's listed. This is where it is recorded. It had already been. Yes, 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 yes. And that is the end of the Parsha. And therefore, why is this week's Parsha called Parsha's Pinchas? Because Pinchas killed Zimri in last week's Parsha. And God makes him a Kohen in this week's Parsha for a paragraph and a half. And then after that paragraph and a half, we talk about... The following, a new count, the daughters of Slavkat and inheritance laws, a new leader, and Karbanos, none of which, other than maybe the leader part, because Moshe is dying, none of which belongs here. And what the heck does that have to do with Pinchas? Well, it's like the sexual immorality. Wait, one second. But that was last week's Parsha. Yeah, Yes. He kills them in last week's Parsha, and then in this week's Parsha, it introduces him, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Cohen did this wonderful thing when he killed those people, and I'm going to make him a Cohen. Well, he brought the last chapter to an end, he concluded... That's where he belongs! And he belongs in last week's Parsha, at the very last chapter, that's how it should have ended. I mean, that's, that's, that's how you would have written it if you were doing the screenplay. Why? This does not answer the question at all! There's no law in this week's Parsha that says not to, not to you know, uh, have sexual relationships with non-Jews. But that's universally relevant. What does that have to do with, with uh, Pinchas? I mean, so does Titsis. Right? Why, again, what you're saying, what you're saying is true, but it doesn't really, it doesn't, um, Address the problem. Yes, by Carbonos. Why specifically Carbonos? And second of all, the it doesn't answer why Pinchas is split in two. So again, to be clear, Pinchas being split in two is a problem for two reasons. Number one, it's a problem because it belongs with the other half of the story, and number two, it's a problem because the rest of the parsha and parsha's Pinchas has nothing to do with Pinchas, and it has nothing to do with each other. 
Yeah, introduces Pinchas and makes him a Kohen, and that's it. And then you hear neither hide nor hear of him until again next week's Parsha, which we're going to have to deal with next week. But for right now, I mean, this is like, it's a head-scratcher. That what? He was so honored, so what? So then call last week's Parsha, Parsha's Pinchas. It doesn't belong in a different portion than the story. Either last week's Parsha belongs here, or this week's belongs there. Right? Take your pick. I would have been comfortable with either. Um, but certainly, the, the split it is is inexplicable. Um, so, in order to in order to understand this, we have to understand a little bit more about uh, this law. Why did Pinchas kill Zimri? Like, wh- why is he killing him? So, because a person who is Haboel Aramis cannot in Poginbo, which means a person who has relations with a non-Jewish woman. A zealot can kill him. Now, you've probably never heard of a worse law than that. That's an awful law. It's a great, right? Oh, and who's a zealot? Anyone who thinks they're a zealot. What a great idea. Let's put machine guns in the hands of all the religious zealots. Oh, oh, I know what that's like. ISIS, Al-Qaeda... This is the Talibanization of Judaism, you understand. You're letting a Kanai, who is self-proclaimed, a self-proclaimed zealot, those are the most dangerous people on planet Earth. They can go kill this guy? I mean, that's a problem. Now, now that's what the law is. Again, that's the law. It's a very difficult law to understand. Let's, let's try to dissect why it's a problem. If Hashem does not want Jewish people to have sex with non-Jewish people, you know what he should have done? I'll give you a hint. He should have said so. That's what he should have done. Can you please, in this book, find me the place where it says, Thou shalt not do the shiksa. Can you find me that in the Torah? I'll give you a hint. No. No. Unless it's adultery, then it says but then, but but then, it's not just about right? You can't, you can't. There, you would have there. Would, there would be no adultery because the Torah wouldn't recognize marriage as kedushin. But you, you understand, it doesn't even tell you anywhere that there's a lav in the Torah to do this. There is no lav. There is no negative prohibition commanding Jewish Jewish people not to do that. Um, that's weird. That's weird. Like you'd think that that would be right up there in like the Ten Commandments well, or something. Well, he was with a Midianite woman, or with the fact he was open, having sexual relations like on the temple, like Yeah, but if he was having sexual relations openly with a Jewish woman, it would not have been like Pinchas wouldn't have killed him. There's no din of a Kanai who can who could do that. He can only do it if it's a non-Jewish woman. And and but again, the Torah doesn't say anywhere that he's not allowed to do that. Uh, and and if God wanted us to not do that, then he should have said so. And not only should he have said so, but if he has a problem, tell me something. Let's say a guy, um, you brought it up before, commits adultery, right? What do we do to him? We kill him. Death penalty. The death penalty for adultery, according to Judaism. And do you know where they adjudicate it? I'll give you a hint. In the courts, where they adjudicate everything. So if God wants to kill people for stepping off, so to speak, right, with Christina, you know what he should have done? He should have said, if you do this, we'll take you to the Besden and we'll kill you. The same way that if you do this with, 
you know, uh, your grandmother, person who has sex with his grandmother, would kill you, right? That's right. Dead. Yeah. So. Yeah. So she converted. Ruth, Ruth converted. She's Jewish. Right. She's not a Moabite. She's Jewish. She's Jewish. Ruth is Jewish. She's a Moabite. So that's a different issue. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's also this is. It's not just a symbolic end of this plague of twenty-four thousand mm-hmm. people killing for the sacrifice. It's the literal end. There are these people doing this thing that the plague happened about, and you kill them and the plague ends. Right, and therefore. And therefore, it is where it is because that's the portion which the plague ends. That well, one second. So you're trying to answer the previous question now. I guess so. Okay, but it still doesn't answer it because that still belongs here. But right, right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's not a great translation, but yeah. Yes, 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 yes. That's true. That's true. Again, the law is that a person of Boala Ramis. Account, I can kill him. I understand that. I'm asking, why would you make such a law? It's a strange law. If God wants people to not go out with Christina, A, say so, and B, deal with it in the Besden. Period. Deal with it in the Besden. Yeah. So it doesn't. So what, what kind of a law is this? It's the strangest law in the world. Well, yeah, it's true. It is a very strange law. But if you dig a little, you'll realize that it gets much stranger. Strangerer and strangerer. So I would like to read for you, if you please, I'm going to read the entirety of the Mishnah. Mishnah says as follows. It turns out there's not only one precedent in Jewish law where a Kanai, a zealot, can kill you for doing something. In fact, there are three. There are three. I know we only know the, the exciting one. So, Hagoni Vesakisva, a person who steals... A, a, a kasva, according to the Gemara, is a klishari. It's a person who steals, like, a vessel from the temple. Imagine someone, God forbid, runs into the temple and grabs one of the golden spoons from the menorah. The hamakalo bakosein, and a person who curses by the wizard. I know, that's a hard thing to understand what the heck that means. The haboel aramis, and a person who has sexual intercourse with a non-Jewish woman. Kanaim pogimbo, a zealot can kill you. A zealot can kill you. Now, that's the beginning of the Mishnah. The Mishnah continues, Kohen Shishimish Betuma, if a Kohen, uh, if a Kohen did the Avoda while Tameh, his brothers, the Kohanim, do not bring him to the courts. Rather, the young Kohens bring him outside of the courtyard, Umafsin es Mochel Begizrin, and they, uh, blow, they, they, they beat him to death. Zar Shashimish B'mikdash, great religion. Zar Shashimish B'mikdash, if a person who is not a Kohen did the Avoda in the, in the temple, Rabbi Akiva says, you kill him by strangulation, and the Chachamim say, God will kill him, Misavidei Shemayim. So in fact, that's the Mishnah. Great Mishnah, Mishnah Sanhedrin, you can look it up, Ayin Shem Asim Right? What qualifies a zealot? Here's the best part. Do you know what the criteria for zealotry are? There are no criteria. Nowhere does the Torah say, and by the way, who gets to be a zealot? You will not find that anywhere. But if it's worthy of the death penalty, give them the death penalty! <laughs> so, um, 
Sorry about that. So again, let's. You have a base then. You have a base that is adjudicating capital crimes. You have a base that is adjudicating everything. Yes, it's the mission. The mission is telling you what the law is. But meaning, in the. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a hefker society. Yeah, I'm saying there is because you have people, you know, having relations in front of on the on the, on the floor of the temple, and you're having if you're cursing, and you're, and you're having. You know, one second, second, one second, one second. If somebody murders somebody in the street, can a zealot kill him? No. No. And if a person commits incest in the middle of the street, you also can't kill him. That is much more disgusting than, you know, Yankee and Christina. So it's not, it's not a function of, of a chaotic society or, or, or an anarchy. Um, the, the Torah is telling you that this is how it has to be. And that doesn't make things, any intuitive sense. So I hear what Carol is saying. These three things, stealing the vessel, yeah. curses by the wizard, I love what that means. Right, what does that even mean? Yeah. yeah. have to symbolize three specific societal Maybe. Well, they would be a logic that a zealot could Yes, right. There might, well, yes, but what you're saying is. You can't rely on That they might be so, so handed that you can't rely on a court at this point. It has to happen right away. Again. One second. It's not even a sin. There's not even a negative commandment in the Torah. Exactly, exactly. Why do you have a halakha l'moshem Sinai, an unspoken law, that if some guy does Christina, you kill him, and there's not even a law that you can't do it? And how do you know there's not a law that you can't do it? Because the Gemara asks. The Gemara says, well, what happens if a Kanai doesn't kill him? What happens? And the Gemara goes through psukim from, from Nach to find out, oh, that there's, there's kares. There could be a, a, a cut-offness. I say there might be kares because my focus is showing him whether there's actually kares or whether it just means that he won't have good Talmidim, according to the Gemara. It's a hard Gemara to read. Um, well, there's definitely a prohibition from intermarrying with the seven nations of Canaan. Losus mm-hmm. Um And also that would be... that. It doesn't... There is no... There is no... Um, Prohibition in the Torah doesn't exist. Yes, yes, yes. Obviously, but but this is the way that you're going to get to what it is is by going through the structure of the problem. You can't punish somebody for anything obvious. That's why you can't give somebody any kind of punishment through an a fortiori argument. It doesn't work. Um, who else was a zealot other than Pinchas? The most famous one is Eliyahu, and the Gemara equates Pinchas and Eliyahu and says they're the same guy. Um, so let's, let's attack this, uh, in, in an organized way. It does not say he was a Kanai. No. Well, he definitely wasn't a Kanai. He was doing all sorts of non-Jewish women. That was like his big thing. That was his big thing. Shimshon. Yeah. So, so when I was thinking about the mission, I, I've been wondering, um, for a long time, what these three have in common. And like you say, obviously they have something in common. Otherwise they wouldn't be the only three. That, uh, that, that have this strange law. Um, and I am frankly at a loss. I don't know what they have in common. I don't understand. Um, 
But if you if you think about the Mishnah a little bit more, I think that there's another question which you would have to ask. Why are these things in the Mishnah together? Again, the Mishnah says that there are three things that if a person does, a zealot can kill him. Sex with a non-Jewish woman, cursing by the, by the wizard, and stealing a vessel from the temple. Then it says, a Kohen who did the service while Tameh, the Kohanim beat him to death right outside the, the Azara. And then it says, if a non-Kohen did the Avoda, then there's a Machloka, so Rikiva says Bezdin kills him, and the Chacham Segai kills him. What are those things doing together in the Mishnah? That's the question, you see? That's the question. What does it mean? I understand still the what does it mean? Oh, the wizard thing? Yeah, so we're not going to go into that because uh, I don't think we're going to have time. But if you want to look it up, you would go to um, you go to Sanhedrin on Payala from the base at the very bottom and and uh, try to figure out what it means. It's not an easy thing to understand. And there's Mahlokas actually in the Gemara about what it means. So, no, no, no. Cursing by the wizard. It's Again, you know, you'll have to Google that one on your own. It's from the Harry Potter. It is, exactly. It's a, it's a Hogwartsian, it's a Hogwartsian notion. So I think that we must, we must dig a little bit into the concept of kanaus or kanaut, which means zealotry. Now, I remember my Zaydi, Shalom, used to say all the time, it says, uh, it says in the Ten Commandments, right, this is great. If you go all the way back to Parshas Yisro, you will see, and you're all familiar with this, uh, it says, pardon me, I will quote for you directly. Hmm. I am Lord your God who took you out of Egypt from the house of slaves. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image nor any likeness of that which is in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the water beneath the earth. You shall not bow to them, nor shall you worship them. For I am Hashem your God, a jealous God, who visits, who visits the sins of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations for my enemies, but who shows kindness for thousands of generations to those who love me and observe my commandments. This is a putrid translation. Putrid. And my Zadie used to laugh at it all the time. Because God is a jealous God. Right? Who's he jealous of? Yeah, he's a zealous God. He's not a jealous God. Really? God is a jealous God? God is jealous of Jeff Bezos because he owns everything. Sorry. Like, what, what, what does that mean, God is jealous? God's not jealous. God is zealous. El Kanahu. He is a Kana. What's Kana? Kanoi. He is a Kanai. He is a zealot. It says over here in the parsha, "Hey Shivas Pinchas, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Akohen. Hey Shivas Kamosib Al Ben Israel. He took off my wrath from the Jews. Bekan O S T N A C. When he zealotried my zealotry. When he was zealous about my zealousness. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does zealot even mean? When we say the word zealot in English, it means a, a religious nutcase." That's a zealot. A guy who's willing to set your house on fire because you don't have a beard. That's a zealot. A zealot's a guy that spits on you on the seven-year-old girl because her skirt's too short. That's a zealot. No, that's a that's a cuff, not a cool. Kain. Yes, they're related. They're related. It's the 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 is the same. Well, it's not. But it doesn't mean that. It doesn't. It doesn't mean to acquire, but it's related to acquire. It means zealot. But again, what what's a zealot? What are the what are the parameters of zealotry? Where does it start and where does it end? And how do you know if you are one? And why would there even why would that even be a thing? And what does it mean that God is zealous? Goodness gracious! Oh.
Okay. Here's what I think it means. I think the key, I think the key is in the fact that the Mishnah groups things together which seemingly have nothing to do with each other. After you finish the first category, and we said the first category is that there are three things and only these three things that, that the law is a Kanai can kill you. After it tells you that, it starts talking about Kohanim, who, who did the Avoda Batuma, or a, or a person who's not a Kohen who did the Avoda. Well, why? Why is that, why is that in the same Mishnah? Well, let's, let's think about it a little bit more deeply, shall we? It says, Kohen Shashimesh Batuma, a Kohen who did this service while it's Tame, Ein hakohanim mevien also the best. Ein echav hakohanim. I think it says actually. I should be more precise about that. His brothers, the kohanim, do not bring him to bezdin. Right? That's what it says. Yes. Ein echav hakohanim. It's so beautiful. That word is very important. His brother kohanes do not bring him to bezdin. Rather, the young kohanim take him outside and beat his head in. That's a strange rule, isn't it? When he's Tameh, if he was Tameh and he did the Avoda, the Kohanim drag him outside and beat him. This is their brother. They drag him outside and they beat him to death. I don't know. So, um, well, yeah. Now, now, what, what does that tell you? I think, I think what it's saying is a person who, person who denigrates the Kahuna by doing the service while Tameh even though it happens to be that it's illegal to do the service while coming, and God will kill you as chiv kares, and there's a lot, so you can bring him to Bezdin. His brother Kohanim do not bring him to Bezdin. They take him outside and they beat him to death on the spot. Why? Because this is not about serving justice to this guy. This is about preserving the sanctity and the integrity of the kahuna. That's the issue. And therefore, the way that the Mishnah, the way that the Mishnah writes it is, is very, very beautiful. His brother Kohanim do not bring him to Bezdin. Meaning, like in a time to kill, right? Some guy, uh, like raped this guy's 12 year old daughter. He didn't call the cops. He grabbed a shotgun. Same thing. It's like, oh, oh, you think this is a legal issue? Oh, how wrong you are. This is not a legal issue. This is a daddy issue. This is my shotgun. Meet daddy and the shotgun. If you are a Kohen and you do the service whilst Tameh, this is not an individual issue that you did something that was illegal and therefore you have to be punished for your own self. No, no. No, no. You have just burned the American flag in the Oval Office. You are denigrating the office of the presidency. You are denigrating Lahabdo. You are denigrating the kahuna. So his brother Kohanim don't bring him to best. Then they take him outside and they beat him to death. Now, and that preserves the, the importance is not the right word. And the integrity is not the right word. And the essential property is not the right word. The gravity, maybe? You get what I'm saying. It preserves the gravity of the kahuna. The untouchable nature of the kahuna. The idea that the kahuna cannot be in any way perverted, even slightly. A person who perverts the kahuna by, by doing the service while Tameh will die. And he will die at the hands of his brothers, the Kohanim. Because they're the ones 
who are demonstrating the gravity of the kahuna by doing this. Well, if that's the case, all of a sudden, let's take a look at the mission again because this case is going to be the key that unlocks all the other cases in the Mishnah. Obviously, a person who, if you say, a Kanai can kill you, a Kanai can kill you, but a court can't, that's an interesting alliterative sentence. A Kanai can kill you, but a court can't. Um, let's, let's hit pause for a moment. Let's hit pause for a moment. And let me show you a very cool way to think. This is very cool. It's great. It's a great little exercise because you could do it all the time. I'm going to ask the question. And then after I ask the question, we're going to ask the question a different way. You see, it's not a question at all. Okay. Here's the question. Why would you allow someone to take care of something outside of the courts without any parameters, no witnesses, but you are the judge, jury, and executioner and not the court? Why would you not? want to litigate it in a court if you have a problem with it. That's the question. Yeah, but no one's attacking you. They clearly do because they're a family, right? So why why would you do that? Well, so this is, it's a very good question, but now stop thinking of it as a question, yeah? Stop thinking of it as a question. Think of it as a lesson. Say, there are certain things, there are certain issues that happen which cannot be adjudicated in court because they're not an issue of a court, they're an issue of something else. Clearly, it's not a court issue. How do you know it's not a court issue? Because it's not under the purview of the court. So your question isn't really a question. Your question is a signpost. Your question is a flag to you, a hint to you that you're looking at the issue wrong. It's not a person doing something illegal. If it was a person doing something illegal, it would be in the court. So what you're saying is, now why, so that's the first thing. And you know that to be true. But now if you look in the Mishnah, now you know exactly what the Mishnah is saying. Because the Mishnah put another case directly by this case, and it's the same sort of thing. A person does something wrong, and you don't bring him to court because the issue is not court. The issue is an attack upon the sanctity of an institution. And when that happens, you don't go to court. You kill him on the spot. We haven't answered why just the Kana yet. You kill him on the spot. That is an extrajudicial issue. It's a really hard thing to do. Maybe only a zealot would do it. Yeah, zealots are dangerous people. So let's talk for a moment about what the word zealot really means. Because again, in English, zealot just means Bible-thumping crazy person. But akanai in, in Hebrew does not mean that. What does it mean that God is a zealous God? Oh. Okay. Everything that we've said until now, you're going to have to suspend it on a shelf in your brain. And you're going to have to hit pause because we're going to need to get some more information in order to answer the question. So, hit pause. Bilam, last week, tries to kill the Jewish people. He tries to curse them and it doesn't work. And what does he do when he sees that he cannot curse them? He comes up with a great idea. He says, well, I might not be able to curse them, but Elohehem shall elu sonezimahu. Their God hates promiscuity. Their God hates promiscuity. So I'll tell you what to do. Go get some good-looking chicas, dress them up real nice, and send them to go seduce the Jewish boys. And they'll fall over themselves and destroy themselves. And you don't have to raise a finger. And it was a great idea. Yeah. Now it turns out it was, in fact, a brilliant idea. 
But something occurred to me last week, which we didn't get to talk about because it didn't occur to me until Friday night. But it's awesome. It is absolutely awesome. It's a 90 percenter. And I don't remember. It's been a while since I had a 90 percenter. It is a 90 percenter. It turns out that our Parsha last week, uh, Parsha Spolik, has a twin. And the twin is Kisisa. That's the, the Parsha all the way back in the middle of Exodus when the Jews do the golden calf. Why would I say that this is a twin? So, and again, suspending everything that we've discussed thus far in the back of your mind, because after the Jews, after the Jews commit the sin of the golden calf, Moshe, Moshe sees, it's funny, we've asked the question before, but we've never answered it in this forum. Moshe sees the nation is uncovered because Aharon had uncovered them for a vulnerability to those who would stand against them. That's what the verse says. And Moshe saw the nation that they were uncovered because Aaron had uncovered them as a schmutz for those who would stand against them. What the heck does that mean? The answer is, up until last week, I had no idea. And we've asked the question in this year before. We've asked it, I think, twice in the past two years. No idea what the Pusik even means, Parsons. You just can't read it. It's an incoherent Pusik. I'll tell you exactly what it means. Bilam. The second Moshe sees that the Jews did the golden calf, Moshe says, oh my gosh, they are uncovered. What do you mean they're uncovered? It means that they're vulnerable. To whom are they vulnerable? To those who would stand against them. Who would stand against them? Bilam. How do I know that Moshe is thinking of Bilam? Because Moshe, immediately after the sin of the golden calf, says to the Jews, I'm going to try to be machaper. I'm going to try to atone. And you know what he asks God? This is God. This is Moshe's request of God after the Jews committed the sin of the golden calf. Not just forgive the Jews. He says, don't give prophecy to the other nations. What? 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 I'm sorry. Your people sinned. You guys sinned by creating a graven image and bowing down to it. And your, and your request to God is that God shouldn't give prophecy to the nations. What the heck are you talking about? The answer is, now that the Jews have done this, Moshe sees they're vulnerable. To who? To the prophets. Which is what it meant in last week's Parsha when it says that Bilam looks, Vayoshes Elah Midbar Panav, he puts his face to the Midbar, and Rashi says... To the eagle. I'm going to hit them for the eagle. That's exactly what Moshe does right afterwards. And in fact, if you look at the Warren Brachas, it shows you the Agadic texts are all on the same page. All these, the, both, both issues. So, so God says to Moshe, okay, I'm going to give you everything that you've requested. You got it. Moshe requested three things or two things, depending upon, well, he requested three. He got at least two, depending upon which Tana you hope like in the Warren Brachas. Um, and after, I have to read this to you. I have to read it to you because if I say it out loud, you're not even going to believe me. This is how crazy it is. It's wild, okay? It's wild. Listen to this. Hashem says, uh, well, it is a process, but um, on page, page 510, Hashem says to Moshe and Pasuk Yud, I'll read it in English. Behold, I seal a covenant before your entire people. I shall make distinctions that have never been created in the world. Blah, blah, blah. Then he says, beware of what I command you today. Behold, I drive, you, I drive out before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Chittite, the Prizi, the Yehivi, the Yavusi. Be vigilant, lest you seal a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you will come, lest it be a snare among you. Rather, you shall break apart their altars, smash their pillars, cut down their sacred trees, for you shall not bow yourselves to an alien god. For the very name of Hashem is Jealous One. He's a jealous god. Wrong! Zealous, zealous, right? But one second. Zealous, zealous, where have we heard that before? Lest you seal a covenant with the, with the inhabitant of the land and stray after their gods, slaughter to their gods, and he invite you and you eat from his slaughter. And you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters stray after their gods and entice your sons to stray after their gods. 
wait a minute, so you're telling me after the Jews do the golden calf, Moshe's like, oh no, now we're vulnerable to Bilaam. And he asks God to take away Nebuah from Bilaam. And God takes away Bilaam's ability to curse them. And God says, but be very careful. Don't make a bris with the inhabitants of the land because your boys are going to run after their girls. And what does Bilaam do? Exactly that. And what does it say? What does Hashem say? Hashem says, be really careful. You will not bow down to another God. Because God is a zealot. El Kanahu. He's a zealous God. So you're telling me that it's an accident that we have Bilam in the same Parsha as running after their girls and God calling himself zealous. And now in our Parsha, which is 40 years later, literally 40 years later, at the end of Sefer Bamidbar, the Jews do the Znus with the Venos Midian, and we have a Kanai who does the zealousness of God. Probably not a Kuinky Dink. They're mirrors. The Parshas are mirrors. So, what is Hashem saying with all this zealous business? The word Kana, zealousness, means to want to preserve the integrity of relationship. To want to preserve the essential properties of the thing and not allow it to be perverted into something else. This is why, again, it's in the same Mishnah as the Kohen, who is Mishamish Batuma. Now, how do I know this is true? I'll tell you how I know. Because there actually is a more famous case of a Kanai. You know what I think the most famous, well, maybe it's not the most famous, but certainly gets brought up the most in Shaz. A Sota woman. A Sota woman. The Avarla Ruach Kina, the Kine Es Ishto. What does a husband do when he sees that his wife is hanging out too much with that guy? He gives her Kinoi. <coughs> hmm. The husband's a zealot now. Huh? Why? Because he is saying there is a sacrosanct relationship only for two. And he senses, he senses that this relationship is being threatened, that something in this relationship is going to stray from the line and veer. That process is called kinoi and kinah. Zealousness, a zealousness to guard the 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 not just sanctity but purity. I mean purity not as in holiness. I mean purity as in without any external things, as in pure water or pure juice. He wants to maintain the purity of the relationship. That is called kinoi. That is called kinoi, which means that that is what a zealot is. Now. I gotta show you something crazy. There's a Gemara in Sanhedrin. Gemara says the strangest thing. Gemara says, you know, the Jews never really worshipped idols. They didn't believe in the idols. That's silly. Jews don't believe in idols. There's these silly little, you know, totem gods and the god of the monkey and the god of the fish. They don't believe in that silly stuff. Says the Gemara, then why, why were the Jews going and doing all these Avodah stuff? Says, Are you kidding me? Lahater lehemarayas befarhesia. Because then they can get away with having all sorts of sexual promiscuity. In the open. 
Because if I'm a nice pagan, I get to do hero scamos orgies. And it's holy. I am so holy. So holy. It's wonderful. See, if you join pagan cult worship, basically you're a Viking. And you can have sex with whomever you want, whenever you like, without any questions. And it's not considered taboo. And no one will cast glances at you. And there's nothing wrong with it at all. And therefore, says the Gemara, the Jews only ever worship idols because they wanted Arias. And then the Gemara asks a question. I said, what are you talking about? We've known Jews who are willing to give their lives for their Avodah Zarah. How could you say that it was all about sex? That's crazy. You know the Gemara answers? Three words. Crazy. Gemara says, Basar Daviku Bey. That's after it already grabbed them. And that's the key to everything. Now watch this. The Gemara is saying, Jews aren't silly. You walk over to Jew, you start telling him about virgin births and baby Jesus and all sorts of things like that. He says, bro, you're tripping. You're crazy. That's ridiculous. I don't believe that sort of thing. You say, let me introduce you to Christina, and she wants to take you out for a night in town. You say, this Jesus guy don't seem so bad. I'm okay with this Jesus guy. Now, obviously, I know I'm not okay with this Jesus guy, but but this this lady Jesus over here, I'm okay with her. So I'll say whatever she wants, and I'll kiss whatever little, you know, tchotchke that she wants me to kiss, as long as I can do whatever I want afterwards. And that's exactly what the Jews did. And then you know what happens? And then you become Christian. And then it grabs you. Now, if you read the Psukim in last week's Parsha carefully, you will find the Jews, this is what it says, the Jews settled in Shittim and the people began to commit harlotry of the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to their feast of their gods. The people ate and bowed to their gods. Israel became attached to Baal and Hashem got angry against Israel. The Jews committed harlotry with the, with the Midianite women. God's not angry. The Jews, they invited them to the feast of their gods. God's not angry. The people ate and bowed to their gods. God's not angry. Israel became attached to Baal Peor and Hashem got angry. Don't you see? Hashem wasn't angry when they were, you know, going out with the shikses. And Hashem wasn't angry when they were going to their, uh, their holy Sunday barbecues. And Hashem wasn't angry when they were bowing down to the baby Buddha. They cleaved to Baal Peor and God got angry. Why? Because if you go out with their chicas, and if you go to their Sunday barbecues at the church, only because you want to go out with Christina, before you know it, before you know it, you become attached to Balpur. That's the problem. Which is exactly what Hashem had said all the way back in Kisisa. Which is exactly what Bilam was going for. So all of a sudden the Jews stop being Jews and they start intermarrying essentially. Intermarriage, the problem with intermarriage isn't that you're married to a woman who doesn't know how to cook gefilte fish. The problem is, you say, but you're not really this now. You're saying that you're something else. You're saying that you're a Jew and you identify as a Jew, but you're out. That's how we see intermarriage. We see it very similar to a way that a, that a Kohen would see a guy who's Mishamish Petuma. You're saying you're out. Exactly. And then, of course, once you live a certain way, you fall in love with that way of living. You become very American. You become very French. You're similar. Hashem is a Kanai. He is zealous. The same way that the husband is zealous when his wife spending too much time with uh, the business partner. Meaning, I have no problem with Bernie. Bernie's a wonderful guy. But, but, 
our relationship is a relationship of two. Bernie's not invited in. And if you leave out, if you leave the relationship, then the relationship is never the same. It's called Kanai. You zealously, you zealously guard the relationship in its purest form. That's Kanai. So Hashem says, don't bow down to other gods. I am a zealous God. Not a jealous God. I'm not jealous. I'm zealous. I want to maintain the relationship this way and not any other way. Other ways are bad. Other ways destroy the marriage. It's not a marriage anymore. You can have an open marriage. Oh, no, but I'm not cheating. I'm not cheating. What are you talking about? I'm not a swinger. I'm not a cheater. I'm not an adulterer. I'm a swinger. What's the difference? My wife said it's okay to commit adultery. I understand. But you see, it's not a marriage. That's something else. That's two people. Oh, very good question. I'll tell you what, when we get the voracious, you have to deal with polygamy. Yeah. yeah. Because you'll see that adultery... Right, because, because adultery is, is much more one-sided in Judaism. Right? It requires... Because a, a man can have several wives. A wife can only have one husband. Right? That's, that's where the issue breaks down. So, and we should discuss why that is. Right? Biologically why it is and philosophically why it is. So... Yeah, it's also economically advantageous. That's true. I wouldn't limit it to that, but yes. So... So, Hashem is a Kanai, and what that means is that your relationship with Him is only you and Him, and not you and anybody else. And the way that you are going to break down this relationship is because you want to be with Christina. You don't really want to, you don't want to step out on Hashem at all. You don't want to step out on Hashem. You just want to step out with Christina. And what Hashem is saying is if you step out with Christina, you're going to end up stepping out on God. And that's what it means when it says, and that's when God got angry, and that's when Pinchas killed him. That's when Pinchas killed him. The Kanai, the Zealot. The one who understands the relationship. This is a person who wants to tear down what Jews are. That's why you kill him. And it's not, it's not an issue for the judiciary. Because it has nothing to do with breaking a law. You're not breaking a law. Breaking a law is if you would have sexual relationships with your sister. That's breaking a law. Kanai can't kill you. Take you to court. That's breaking a law. That's not damaging the integrity of the relationship with the Jewish people. That's why it's extrajudicial. And that's why it's only a Kanai. Now, <clears throat> no, no, it's not offense at all. It's not offense. It's, it's, yeah, but, but, but offense is don't do this because it harms the relationship. This isn't don't do this because of this. This is an attack on the relationship. This is a person, this is a person chopping up the resolute desk and using it in the fireplace. Making it the hickory stump for your barbecue. This is the key. So, all of those pieces should now fall into place for you. So now we know why Pinchas has to be a Kanai. He has to be a person who sees the relationship for what it really is in its purest form. We said earlier that Pinchas is Eliyahu. What does Eliyahu do? Pasuk says, Eliyahu Hanavi will come back. He will return the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to the fathers. Meaning, he knows what the genuine relationship of the Jewish people to Hashem is. Because he's a Kanai. Which means he understands the nature of the relationship. 
No one else, no one else can be Makane your wife. No one can be Makane your wife. Only you can be Makane your wife. It's your relationship. It's only you and her. There is no one else. Pinchas, a.k.a. Eliyahu, is the Kanai because, because he sees this relationship for what it is. And therefore, he will do the connection between the fathers, meaning thousands of years ago, the original, you know, the, the progenitors, and us. That's why he's the Kanai. Which, of course, if you look and say from the Lachim, you'll see, what does Eliyahu say to God? Kano kinesi Hashem alokai. I have been zealous. The same guy. The same character. Now, why would we split the story in two? That's a great question. I'll tell you why. Pinchas being made a Kohen has nothing to do with the story that we read last week. They're two different issues. Well, it's not that they're two. They're, they're obviously causative, but they're two different issues. The last week is Parsas Balak. We're talking about Bilaam attacking the Jews and failing and then succeeding. And his success was curtailed by an action of a guy named Pinchas. Period. End of Parshas Balak. End of Parshas Balak. Now let me tell you something about the integrity of the relationship between the Jewish people and God. Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron HaKohen. He is a Kanai and therefore I'm going to make him a Kohen. It's a totally different issue. Now it happens to be, but yeah, but the only reason this happened is because of what he did last week. Yes, I understand, but if I would have told you this last week, you would think that this is some kind of reward for something that he did. It's not a reward for something that he did. It's a definition of who he is essentially. It's the essential property of Pinchas. You ever wonder, why wasn't Pinchas a Kohen anyway? He's Aaron's grandson. Right? It's crazy. So the answer is because when God bestowed Kahuna upon Aaron, he said, only you and your sons. Yeah, but, but his son Elazar already had a son Pinchas, and he was left out. What a strange thing to do. What a strange, I mean, that's a bizarre thing. Unless the reason God left it out is because if God would have made Pinchas a Kohen in the beginning, you would have thought that there's one way to be a Kohen. It turns out there's two ways of being a Kohen. So he let Pinchas earn his way to the Kahuna. So you would see another side of Kahuna. The first one is the Ohev Shalom, which is Zaydi Aron. The second is the Rodef Shalom. There's the lover of peace. And there's the Rodef of peace. Rodef is a pursuer. Pinchas. Pinchas also becomes the Kohen who's anointed for war. He is the Kohen who asserts, um, who asserts moral supremacy. The Kanai. That's a different Parsha. Now, why would these other issues be in the Parsha? Because the reason, if you look through, if you look through all of the counting, it's B'nai Zvulun, for Sered, Mishpachas Hasardi, for Elon, the family of Eloni, for Yachlael, the Mishpacha Hayachleeli, for Zvuni, uh, for uh, um, Machir, Mishpachas Hamachiri. I mean, you get the point, right? All we're doing is putting a hay and a yud at the end, at the beginning and end of every word, which of course is what Rashi says. We're putting a hay and a yud at the beginning and end of every word. We're putting God's name on every one of the families. We're saying that they're their yichos is pristine, says Rashi. God is testifying that the Jewish people and their uh, their pedigree is pure. Because people would say, obviously the Jewish people think they're Jewish, but they're not really Jewish, they're Egyptian. Because if, the, if they were enslaved, of course the masters took liberties with their women, and God is saying, wrong. No, they didn't. 
and God puts his name on each one of the families to testify that these are the pristine pedigree. But isn't it really cool when you consider that the Gemara says, Ish isha zachu shechina b'neim. If a man and a woman merit, then the shechina is there. Why? Because Ish and Isha both have an olive shin. A man is a yud, a woman is a hay. Zachu, if they merit, shechina b'neim. They have the shechina, the yud and the hay. Lo zachu, if they don't merit, eshel klasan. They're eaten by fire. Because if you remove the name of God from man and woman, you get fire. And if you infuse the yud and the hay, you get the Shechina. Here the Shechina is putting a Yud and a hay in the front and end of every single word and what's it talking about? Pedigree! The relationship between the man and the woman! Which is, of course, what Pinchas was coming to do, right? Pinchas, well, he stopped fire. He didn't make a fire, though. It was, I mean, he killed him, but... So, the, the Parsha of Pinchas doesn't have anything to do with the anecdotal story of the people who did bad things and the fact that Pinchas saved them. It has to do with why Pinchas was the one to save them. It's an issue of kanaos. It's an issue of preserving the, the purest form and the most sanctified and sacrosanct. Am I saying that correctly? I'm not? You do think so or you don't think so? Sacrosanct. Sacrosanct. Not sacrosanct. Sacrosanct. So, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, sacrosanct means cannot be changed. It is sacrilegious, sacred, sacred, and it's sacrilegious to pervert it in any way. That's a kanai. That's a kanai. Kanai is someone who maintains the purity of the thing as it is in its essential properties. And God is zealous with his relationship with the Jews. There's no room for a third in the bed. There's no room. And therefore, Hashem says, even though it is thoroughly philosophically possible to go out and have a one-night stand with Christina and not become not become Christian and not leave God and not do any of that, even though that's thoroughly possible, you know what will happen if you do. And unfortunately, I see it way too often. Way too often. And I tell my high school students, and then I tell them when they're in college, tell them all the time. They say, Rabbi, shikses are for practice. I'm sorry that I'm being very indelicate about it, but like, hey man, get with the program. This is what's happening, so open your eyes. Um, like, shikses are for practice, Rabbi. What's the big deal? That's a great point. You know, the problem is, practice makes perfect. That's the problem. But also, I tell you, disrespect humanity. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah, but they don't. They, for them, it's all Tinder, swipe right. It's mutual masturbation. There's nothing in it. The problem, of course, and, but you're right. You're 100 percent right. The thing is, you understand, you can't have one without the other. You can't, because 100 percent of the people who want to get married fell in love, and 100 percent of the people who fall in love did this first. This is where it goes. So you think it's not a problem because you say, Rob, I would never do that. This is just for fun. I'm telling you that I know that you think that and I know you believe it. And I know that you would never, ever even consider marrying outside the faith. And let me be the first one to tell you that you're going to call me in four years. And you're going to be like, Rabs, I got a problem. And it happens all the time. 
And this is what God said in Parshas Kisisa. He wasn't wrong then, and he's not wrong now. Have an amazing Shabbos.